Take your Bibles as we return for one final time to Titus, the book of Titus. We're in chapter 3 this morning. We'll finish our study here as we look at verses 8 through 15. For the next two weeks as we celebrate Christmas together, we'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, the next two weeks. One article I read this week about running began this way. There is a reason that the best runners in the world train in groups. A community of runners with similar goals and dedication drive each other to be the best version of themselves. Couldn't we say something similar about a body of believers? A community of believers with similar goals and dedication encourage each other to be faithful to Christ's mission. The benefits of partnering with other fellow believers are even more significant than those who run together in a physical sense. The task God calls us to as believers is vital. It's more vital and help from others is even more necessary, often more necessary than we recognize. Paul will demonstrate this truth for us in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 3. We should run with those who run after God. This means that there are some that we need to avoid, Paul will say, and there are others to whom we need to draw closer. Our text this morning will argue that God's people must be committed to the gospel mission by first avoiding distractions, and then by partnering with other faithful servants. Let's look at our text this morning. We'll read, we'll back up just one verse and read verse 8, and then read through the end of the letter. Verse 8, this is God's word to us, his people. God's word says the saying is trustworthy. He's referring to this explanation of the gospel. And I want you, Titus, to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing." And let our people learn, or this is a command, teach them to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with us all. Let's ask for his help as we look at his word together again. Father, we come to you again in prayer expressing our dependence, our need, confessing That our eyes are not naturally inclined to see the word clearly, to understand it well. Our ears are not naturally tuned to want to obey and submit our wills. And yet as people indwelt by your spirit, 
Our hearts have been changed, made new. We desire to do what's right. You've given us a heart of flesh and not of stone. So may you encourage and empower and strengthen us to obey your word, to understand it well and put it in practice even this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Titus is not a long letter as we've seen. We've worked through the contents of these three brief chapters in just a couple of months. Paul emphasizes in chapter 1 that in the church, Christian leaders are to pass on the truth. They're to defend it from false teachers and they are to practice what they preach. Then in chapter 2, he focused on how gospel truth affects believers in the home. He listed out how differing members of the household are to fulfill their duties as they're motivated by Christ's first and his second appearance. And then in chapter 3, Christians are taught to be exemplary in their duties before their authorities and those outside the church as this overflow of the great salvation that God has accomplished for us. The book is arguing that our good works are to declare that God saves and transforms sinners. Salvation changes us completely from the inside out. Works don't save us, but they must accompany a real profession of faith. John Stott concludes about the book, Our doctrine inspires duty, and duty adorns our doctrine. This morning, our text breaks into two parts quite clearly. In verses 9 through 11, Paul gives instructions regarding those who present distractions from the clear teaching of the gospel. And then in verses 12 through 15, as Paul concludes this brief letter, he encourages Titus to pursue and help other healthy believers as they give themselves in service for gospel ministry. So first, avoid those who present distractions from the gospel mission. Now, in order to fully appreciate the verses before us, we needed to be reminded of what we have just covered in verses 4 through 8. Paul spent those four verses explaining the triune God's glorious work in our lives when he saved us. Then in verse 8, he applies these truths to us by commanding Titus to insist on these truths. So that those who have believed in God may be careful or ready or eager or leading out in good works. And then he adds this final little sentence. These things, referring back to all of those instructions, including that gospel hub that's supposed to motivate and drive us forward. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He's saying these are the truths to which you most must devote the majority of your time and attention because they are beneficial. They promote, they propel, they compel us to do good works. They help us to grow up spiritually. They help us in the spread of the good news. And there are some challenging theological truths in those four verses. We're not to be intimidated by those, but dig into them and understand all the magnitude of what Christ has accomplished in our salvation. These things are excellent and profitable. Now, the first thing we see in verse 9 is that we're to avoid useless 
conflict. So compare the last phrase in verse 8 with the last phrase in verse 9. Notice the clear contrast in the wording. These things are excellent and profitable compared with they are unprofitable and worthless. It's clarifying for us what we as believers must keep front and center. What we must prioritize and what we should avoid. In verse 9, Paul is going to come back to the false teachers that he addressed all the way back in chapter 1. And they're teaching. And remind Titus of the contrast. He's saying, don't get distracted. Run with those who run. He says, but... Avoid foolish or stupid or profitless controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Titus is to avoid issues that are not helpful, that are not profitable. Remember what Paul has said in describing the false teachers in chapter 1 and verse 10. It says, for there are many who are insubordinate, they don't submit. They're empty talkers, they're deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They're holding on to truths that are not vital or helpful or needed for salvation. So Paul concludes they must be silenced. So Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. They're not to be devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. This is what they're like. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Do you see that theme reappearing again? Paul's concerned that the teaching and focus of these churches on all churches should be on sound doctrine that promotes spiritual stability and health. There's a priority in the teaching of the church. And we're to be concerned about these same things. What should be the focus of our teaching from this pulpit? Of our discussions in our Sunday school classes and in our life groups? We're to guard against being distracted, veering off down rabbit trails, focusing on things that scripture doesn't address or prioritize. We keep our focus on what is clear and essential from scripture for our spiritual growth and health as a body, Paul says. Now notice the adjective Paul uses here as he describes this teaching. He commands Titus, avoid foolish controversies. Now we need to know what he is saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that as Christians we're to be pacifists who avoid conflict at any and all costs. Remember, Jesus had plenty of conflict over theology and doctrine with the religious leaders who are leading his people astray. Paul himself regularly was required to defend the gospel from false teachers. He suffered for that. And remember that here in this letter, he's instructed Titus to rebuke false teachers three times. We just read where he told him to rebuke them sharply. This doesn't mean avoid all controversy or conflict. But avoid foolish controversies or pointless debates. There are three other errors Titus is called to avoid here in verse 9. Genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. We can't be exactly sure what Paul means by all of these things. We have an idea 
And there's principles to be gained here. The references to genealogies and to the law demonstrate that some kind of Jewish debate is still in view. We've seen that argued from the rest of the letter. This was common in the pastoral epistles. Paul addressed this several times. In 1 Timothy 1, 3 and following, he refers to the false teachers who he says, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. He says they want to be teachers of the law. Scripture includes many genealogies. The issue here is that these teachers are trying to elevate themselves, their status, and their importance by highlighting their pedigree or their background. They're highlighting their own intelligence. This is about shameless self-promotion. Commentator Gordon Fee states, apparently some Jews on Crete who had claimed at least to have accepted Christ, that claim may or may not be true, we're also promoting continuing connections with Judaism, especially in this form of speculative teaching and rigorous devotion to rules and regulations. So Paul's here, point here for us is that we're not to go off into the weeds, talking about every odd point and subpoint of speculation that someone brings up about the Bible. Our world is full of those types of things. We need to keep the main things the main things. Now, how do we know what those are without more specific information from Paul? These things to avoid here are not exactly specific or crystal clear. Well, I think we can answer that from the verses we have right before our text this morning. They provide us with two tests. First, does this theological discussion that I'm about to have or that I'm having exalt our triune God? Clarify something about him and his work, his power to save and transform sinners? Or is it a theological discussion or argument that ends up exalting the intellect and insights of the debater? Who is this trying to promote? That's the first question we should ask. Second, does it help promote good works? There are certain theological questions that arise that are essentially pointless For instance, in church history, there's a well-known question that asks, how many angels can stand on the head of a pin? Who cares? Or another is, could God create a rock so big that he couldn't move it? How do these questions help a believer grow in his or her faith? Our focus should be on the main things of Scripture. Things that are clear and plain and move us to be zealous for good works. So we can ask ourselves when questions or speculations about scripture arise. Does the Bible indicate that this is an important question related to Christ and his work? Will this encourage and promote godliness in my life or a fellow believer's life? So for us, we need to ask ourselves, what do I spend most of my time discussing? Am I celebrating, rejoicing, worshiping God for what he's done as revealed in the word? This is the revelation, the revealing, the manifestation of God in written form. That's what it's about. Am I focused on the issues that matter most in scripture or tangents that have no real benefit for others in the body? Now, certainly there are difficult passages and doctrines that God gives us that are worth studying. 
But where there's a lack of clarity, where there's no clear consensus among Christians, we should not be dogmatic, stubborn, or proud in our own opinions and conclusions. John MacArthur succinctly states, proclaiming the truth, stating positively what the Bible states clearly, not arguing over error, is the biblical way to evangelize. We need to ask ourselves, am I asking questions to impress, to be heard, to reveal my knowledge? Or am I truly looking for an answer? You know, in seminary, there was often, you could tell, there was a couple of guys, and, and not always, but sometimes it was like they, they had read something and they wanted to let everybody else know that they had read something, so they'd raise their hand and ask a question. And it was really more to tell that they'd already figured something out and they wanted to let everyone else know. There's a difference between that kind of question and a question that's truly seeking what, what does the scriptures teach? The demeanor of a Berean believer who looks at the word and says, are these things so? We ask ourselves, am I being teachable? Ready to follow Or do I hold to my opinions and conclusions on issues that are not clear from Scripture as if they are clear? Do I major on minor things? Here's a convicting one. Do I hold on to traditions? What a beloved former spiritual leader has said, rather than considering the Scriptures for myself. Are these things so? How do I know from the Word Do I seek to learn in humble discussion with other believers? If I'm alone in an opinion, I'm in a dangerous place. Am I ever willing to change my opinion when someone presents a valid biblical point? Or do I always have to be right and defend my point of view? Secondly, Paul tells us what to do with such persons. He says, confront divisive persons. Look again at verses 10 and 11. As for a person, notice how he's described, who stirs up division. This is his habit, his practice. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Why? Because you know that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The word here for divisive can be translated as someone who's factious or contentious. He divides people up into groups by nature. You have to take one opinion or the other. And yet we need to be careful here that we're not too quick to ostracize or separate from someone who simply disagrees with us. This verse is not telling us to write off people who have a differing opinion on Bible topics or conclusions that are totally legitimate to come to. It's okay that there are some topics in the church that we don't all line up exactly on. We've talked many times about theological triage. We want to be at the center together. That Jesus Christ is Lord and King and salvation is of our God. But there's other things as we move out that are important yet not essential for everyone to be on the same page. We believe in unity rather, not uniformity. It's okay to disagree over certain things. This isn't telling us to silence or set aside those who ask good and legitimate biblical questions, even difficult ones. This verse is addressing a clearly divisive person. 
This is a person who's so focused on their own conclusions and opinions on matters, they won't hear a warning or correction from those who want to see them restored. Remember what Paul had instructed Titus regarding elders in chapter 1 verse 9. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word. That's their center. That's their rock. So that he may be able to give instruction positively in sound doctrine. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. We see parallel teaching in Acts 20. Paul tells the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He says knowing that after my departure. Fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. They'll come from the outside. And then the next verse says. And from among your own selves. Will arise men speaking twisted things. To draw away the disciples after them. Do you see their self prioritizing again this divisive person identifies himself as such over time by a stubborn refusal to listen and turn now how are those who are a threat to the unity of the church to be treated our unity is precious it is god-given we're to work to defend that unity and promote it so how do we treat someone who's a threat to it They're to be warned twice, and then the church is to have nothing more to do with them. Paul writes in Romans 16, 17, and 18, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine which you have been taught. And then he commands, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This isn't someone who's willing to listen or seeks to be a help to the body. In 3 John, we read of a man named Diotrephes who's running the church in an authoritarian way because John describes of him, he loves to have the preeminence among them. He's self-focused and his leadership is damaging to those in the church. So I want you to note that that's the theme about these false teachers. They're self-promoting. And notice the contrast between this and the ministry of Paul. The mindset of Jesus. Paul says of himself, I am a bond slave of God. This isn't about me. An apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This isn't about me. This word to Avoid them is a challenging and sobering word from God. Means that the divisive person is to be left to his own destruction, his own way. They're not to be pursued any longer. The reason a divisive person is to be avoided because he's warped, sinful, and self-condemned. Think about that word warped. My family and I have watched a few episodes of the show American Ninja Warrior. And at the end, near the end of the obstacle course, is the warped wall. If you've seen it, it's about 10 foot high or so. One is taller than the other. It has this incredible significant curve upward. And the only way you scale that wall is to get enough speed and enough pressure as you jump on the bottom of the wall to reach up and get that handhold and pull yourself over. But it's warped. That's how this person is described. He's constantly bending in on himself. No matter what kind of conversation you get into with this person, it consistently turns to the controversial, unhelpful, profitless debate. He's not interested in helping others or being helped. 
D. Edmund Hebert writes of the wisdom of Paul's instructions here. Further efforts with this kind of person would not be a good stewardship of time and energies and would give the offender an undeserved sense of importance. Stop wasting your time on him. He's not going to listen. Know in your own mind he's self-condemned. In other words, seek to spend your time and effort on running with those who run. Paul clarifies those to avoid. And now he concludes in the last four verses, those who we should pursue. Pursue those who help accomplish the gospel mission. It'd be easy at the end of a letter like this just to breeze over these past few lines. These lists of people that we do not know nor are inherently curious about. They have very little to do with our lives. But we remind ourselves the Holy Spirit included these verses for a reason and for our good. There's still much to glean as we see how Paul engaged. He's modeling for us what good works look like. As he spreads the gospel, as he builds up other churches, as he raises up fellow ministers. And before we look at the specifics of these verses, I want you to just pause and consider How Paul had been radically transformed the day he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's commissioned by the Savior to take the gospel to the Gentiles. To the Gentile world. And now consider the challenges to that mission. He had no mass media. No radio. No television. No internet. He did not have the ability to write a best-selling book that could be spread around to all these different communities. There's no printing press. Transportation is slow and often unreliable. He couldn't drive from place to place. He couldn't take a train or fly. Even the postal system in that age is very rudimentary. He had to walk or sail from city to city. He had to communicate by hand-carried letters that took weeks or more often months to deliver. Think of all these limitations. And yet, in spite of them, Paul launched the Christian message into the Gentile world. His work reverberates even to this day. He's responsible for much of the evangelization of the first century Roman occupied world. This one man, perhaps more than any other single man, has shaped world history and thought. How? How did he do this? Well, he didn't do it alone. That's the principle. He didn't go it alone. He always worked with and through a team of people who are committed to sacrificially serving Christ. Let's consider that as we look at these last few verses. First, we see presence in verse 12. I just chose a one-word summary of each of these verses. Paul wants Titus to come and be with him. And yet someone needs to continue the ministry that Titus has here on Crete. Artemis or Tychicus is coming to take over for Titus. These verses demonstrate Paul is constantly surrounding himself and investing in other believers to do the work of the ministry. And that's how the gospel is thrust forward. 
His ministry is multiplied many times over because he's not doing it by himself. He's giving away parts of it here and there and leaving another man here to preach the word that he's preaching. And it continues to spread and multiply and go forward. This is not a man desperate for accolades and recognition. He's glad to give away ministry opportunities and responsibilities. He doesn't see himself as indispensable or the only one who should do this part of the ministry. He is a servant, a slave, gladly partnering with other fellow believers. As I read this letter and other of Paul's letters, I am impressed constantly and challenged by Paul's servant-minded, humble, and constant focus on Christ's mission. He never lose sight of the fact that this is Christ's work. He is a debtor to mercy alone, and he is investing himself in that cause. His focus on Christ creates the kind of humility that makes teamwork both profitable and a joy. Paul writes to Titus, do your best to come to me. This great apostle is not beyond the need of fellowship and encouragement. Sometimes the best gift we can give one another is simply our presence. Certainly reading scripture, praying with others is a wonderful gift. But sometimes just knowing that I have a brother or sister in Christ that is going to be there with me, walking with me through the hardship, the pain, is one of our greatest gifts, one of the best ways we can encourage. So perhaps there's someone in this body that you need to let them know you're there to listen. You're glad to talk to them, to pray with them. You can send a text this week And say, how can I pray for you? You can pick up the phone. You can write an email. Or to be present in each other's lives. Author Ed Welch helpfully makes this point in his book, Side by Side. He writes, weakness or neediness is a valuable asset in God's community. I want us to think about how counterintuitive that statement is from the way that we normally behave as Christians in our churches. Weakness is a valuable asset in God's community. He continues, anything that reminds us that we're dependent on God and other people is a good thing. Otherwise, we trick ourselves into thinking that we are self-sufficient and arrogance is sure to follow. We need help. And God has given us his spirit and each other to provide it. The basic idea is that those who help best are the ones who both need help and give help. A healthy community is dependent on all of us being both kinds of person. He's saying we should see ourselves in the body as both needy and needed. If Paul believed and committed himself to the development and discipleship of other believers after all that he had learned and seen And taught, don't you think we need to recognize our need of other believers in our lives as well? Where are you pursuing and investing in godly relationships like this? Maybe you need to grow on the side of being needed. Sometimes that's easier. I'll be there for you. I'm happy to serve. But maybe you need to grow on the other side of being needy. 
You can't just clam up, present this nice plastic face that I'm always okay. None of us are. None of us are. We need to be humble enough to say, this is what's happening in my life. I need your prayers. I need a word of encouragement. I could use a text later this week. That's actually good for us to say. It shows the humility. It allows the body to minister in the ways that God has equipped us to do so. Secondly, we see provision in verse 13. We read of two more of Paul's fellow servants in ministry there in verse 13. He tells Titus to help speed them on their way and provide for any needs they may have. It seems most likely that these two men are the ones who carried this letter that we're reading to Titus. And as that letter is now to go around to the other churches on the island, Titus is to see that they have the physical provisions they need to complete the task. It's to help out other believers. And again, we see Paul happily and eagerly promoting the ministry of other believers. When the church in Corinth formed ungodly and healthy unhealthy factions with some saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. Paul doesn't push Apollos aside. He points out that they're both servants of God and both men are willing to work together for the sake of gospel ministry. Paul writes, Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. This is his work. There's no marking off of turf, no jealousy for personal recognition. One pastor concludes that these verses admonish us to promote our teammates and help them succeed. We all serve the Lord and our aim should not be to promote ourselves, but rather to see the name of Christ exalted. In verses 12 and 13, we read of four men. Two who we read of elsewhere in the New Testament. We've heard of them before. Tychicus and Apollos. Tychicus delivers the letter to uh, the Colossian believers. Apollos is is a mighty preacher. But we don't know of the other two. We don't know of Artemis or Zenos. We know almost nothing about them. But here we learn that they're willing to devote themselves to good deeds. They're willing to be used by God. As Paul calls them to help spread the gospel. And this teaches us that we don't have to make a name for ourselves in order to be used by God. We don't have to be known in order to be faithful. And frankly, that's who most of us are as Christians. We're not well known outside of our own sphere of influence. And that's just fine. We're to be faithful. There are no insignificant servants in the service of God. There are no insignificant servants in the church. We're called to be faithful. It may be teaching in the church. It may be as simple as carrying a letter or just being a godly friend who's ready to listen and give a word of encouragement. Third, they're to be profitable. Paul urges Titus one more time to teach God's people to devote themselves to good works. These are works that seek to help other believers in need. And are profitable in the promotion of gospel ministry. One author writes on ministry in the church. He says the key to effective ministry is never found in its institutional setting. In its organization in and of itself. But always in its relational setting. Whenever believers come to know and care for others. To reach out and share. Encourage and help. There in that place. 
is the setting for the most significant ministries that can take place. This isn't just a nice pastoral idea. You need to see this coming from the text. Who is Paul talking about? Not what kind of ministries is he talking about? What program is he laying out here for us? It's not a program. It's people. It's people. Service in the church is not primarily about what you are doing here, but who you are pouring yourself into. Look at all the people Paul has invested in in these four verses. If you actually think about it, we can't even count them all. He says, greet all. Grace be with you all. All who are with me send these greetings to you. These messages are going to churches and we don't know who all they are. There are many people being reached by this service. Lastly, we see partnership. In verse 15, Paul concludes the letter by sending greetings, encouraging greetings to be shared by those who are united in the faith. And again, we see Paul concerned for the growth and health of churches. He's not just focused on a single church where he had gotten saved or where he had gotten discipled or the church that had sent him out on this mission. He's interested in the health of churches, plural, in the spread of the mission. We're to adopt this mindset as well. That's that's why we pray every Sunday morning for another gospel preaching church. We're not just interested in the success, the growth, the health of Subaroad Baptist Church. The gospel ministry is bigger than us and praise God for that. We can't do all the work God's called us to do alone. Paul's willing to send a close friend, Titus, to another ministry for a time. He sacrificed his own personal fellowship for the growth and health and development of other believers and churches. We need to pray that God would raise up men and women among us who would go, who would leave us for the sake of other churches and the advance of the gospel. Subaru Road is not a kingdom unto itself. As much as we would love to stay together as a family, that, that's not the goal or the point. We're to be sending people out to do this gospel work. We're to rejoice in that, though there's sorrow at losing that fellowship in the immediate. The mission is bigger than just one church. Can you see Paul's passion for healthy churches beyond just where he's currently at? That's to be our passion as well. Our text tells us that staying focused on Christ's mission requires us to avoid pointless division and to pursue productive gospel partnerships. The running article I began with this morning ends with this final message. Take the time to share your struggles and lessons learned along the way with your teammates. Chances are one of them will go through the same struggle eventually and will draw strength from your experience. It helps to know you're not alone. Take the time to be a good teammate. Engage with your teammates, encouraging them through the difficulties and celebrating when the sailing is smooth. Are you a good teammate in this church? Who are you helping? Who are you encouraging to run? Perhaps you need to let another member know that you currently need help and encouragement. Perhaps you're needy this morning 
and you need the body to do what the body does. Perhaps you're needed this morning. Take the time to be a good teammate. Is there a conversation or discussion that you need to avoid this week because it would not be profitable for the building up of the unity of of our body? Is there some good that you need to plan on doing or be ready to do for someone in our church family? Is there an unbeliever in your life who needs to see the love of Christ through a clear act of kindness? May we take this passage, these truths, these principles to heart. May we devote ourselves to reflecting the love of our God for us in a way that we refrain from what is unhelpful and in a way that we offer help and support and encouragement to brothers and sisters in need. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we rejoice even in these practical instructions, these final comments that Paul pens for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize the great value of the mission that you would encourage us by the persistence, the passion of Paul on Christ alone, on proclaiming his value and his worth, exalting his name and ignoring his own praise, his own credit. Father, we need help to be shaped into selfless, humble servants. That is not natural for us. We want credit. We want our gifts, our contributions to be recognized. And yet, Lord, if we're giving them to you, we get all the recognition we'll ever need. We're responding to your grace. Help us to be motivated in that. Help us to look out for ways to encourage and strengthen and give a word of encouragement and affirmation to our brothers and sisters in the body. Help us to look for ways to share this good news with those outside of our church family. Help us to demonstrate that we are changed. That we have a God who transforms us from selfish, self-promoting sinners into humble, sacrificial servants. We need your grace to do what we cannot do on our own. So strengthen us, I pray, this week. In Jesus' name, amen.